1: Well hello, my name is Anne Pickering and until summer last year I was the HR Director and Chief of Staff at O2 in the UK. Since then I've been doing some uh, advisory work, strategic advisory work for companies like KPMG and I'm also doing some coaching and I'd like to say a big warm welcome to the Inspiring Leadership uh, Series and um, introduce you to Jonathan Bowman-Perks who's going to be our host for today's podcast.
0: Thank you very much, Anne. It's great to have you on the series. You were highly recommended. I've heard about you for quite a long time, even though you and I have never worked together. And and I do think in the conversation we had before about your life, your upbringing, the stories you went through and the, the key themes of authenticity and being yourself and learning from resilience and some tough knockbacks, but actually looking after yourself during all that. And then also becoming a member of the O2 board which was a great job, and the Chief of Staff. It's a huge achievement, and all that you did in diversity and inclusion is things we're going to be talking about. So welcome, Anne. It's great to have you on the series. Let's go back to your early days and your upbringing and who influenced the woman, the leader you are today. So tell us just, tell us a bit of your story.
1: So um, I was born and brought up in Liverpool, a very proud scouter, big fan of Liverpool Football Club, uh, my parents were Irish immigrants, my dad was a son of a farmer from Tipperary, and my mother was the daughter of a, a publican uh, in the north of Ireland, Newry. Um, so very Catholic upbringing, um, four sisters and a brother, um, I have 64 first cousins, that's how big my wow. family is, and that included uh, you know, nuns who didn't have any children, so it's a big big old family, um, and it was a very happy upbringing, a bit chaotic, um, all of us in, in one house, Um, um, my mum and dad weren't wealthy both of them had two jobs for a long time trying to keep everything together and they did it really well Um, and uh, I went to a convent school so nuns have played a very big part in 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 my life Um, and at uh, the age of 40 when my mum had um, my little sister so this is her sixth child she decided to go off and train to be a teacher albeit in Liverpool And she'd been a stay-at-home mum. And that was a massive moment in my life, because at that age, you just want your mum to be like everybody else. You also just want to live in a house like everyone else. And we had this big, old ramshackle house that was a bit falling apart. And all my friends had nice three-bedroom semis. So, you know, I kept looking over the fence and seeing what other people had and wanted it. But ironically, lots of my friends wanted to have big brothers and sisters like I had. So, you know, interestingly, you're never happy. But my mum going off to train at the age of 40 um, had a massive impact on on my life. And and she very much instilled in us all, particularly the daughters, the the five sisters, that we could do anything. Not in a cocky way, but it was if you work hard and apply yourself, you can do anything. So she did. I look back and I'll be very grateful for her instilling that into us, actually. Mm. Um, Managed to go to university. It was the days when, you know, university grants were means tested. So actually five of us got to university and did an English degree based on the fact that I enjoyed reading books, to be honest. Um, and when I used to go home during the, the vacations, I used to work in Marks & Spencer as what they called a temporary seasonal during the, during the holiday, university vacations. And When it came to my final year, I suddenly thought I really need to think about what I do at the rest of my life. And I thought I'd join the graduate training scheme in Marks if they'd have me. Because I realized several things. I didn't want to be chained to a desk every day. Um, I really enjoyed customers uh, people. They were very unpredictable. And you know at that age I didn't have many smart ideas, but that was one of them. and lucky enough to be accepted on the graduate training scheme for Marks and Spencer. and it was amazing. I learned so much. Um, it, it was just but I, one of the things I loved about it was the unpredictability and customer behavior, you know, I can remember being in Brent Cross, christmas eve two men fighting over a turkey it was (laughs) bizarre um i can remember helping deliver a baby again in brent cross so the life skills and the things i learned you know stayed with me and also you know i still can fold a jumper and put it in my wardrobe and it's a work of art so these things stay with you Um, and good old marks and spencer taught me a lot um left marks and spencer and um joined uh an American investment house very different you like going from frying pan to fire one was very organized very structured very rigid into into Fidelity that was just amazing it was just like going from into a different world and I was just this kid from Liverpool and I had my own office and, you know my parents dined out on the fact that their daughter had her own office in London um so that was an amazing time so I thoroughly enjoyed uh working for, for Fidelity and then was made redundant uh it was actually quite a good lesson to be made redundant quite early on in your life. Um, a, to go through it. And you know what? No matter what anyone says, it is personal. And don't let anyone say it's not. It feels personal. But it was good to go through it. It was tough. Um, and then I joined um, an IT an IT company when IT, you know, the year 2000 was absolutely exploding. And I probably cut my teeth there and did every job in HR known to HR, And it's where I got my first big break. And a lot of people, when they get to a senior position, say, I was lucky. I don't buy that at all. It takes talent and hard work to become a senior leader. But you need to see the opportunities and seize them. And that's where the luck comes in. And my boss um, was having a baby. And so I went and knocked on the CEO's door and said, could I cover for her while she's on maternity leave? And you don't need to pay me. I was very fortunate. They said, "Sure, you can cover it, but we will pay you." So that was that was great. Yeah. And now my big learning there was I realised that I could do it. I suddenly it gave me the being the being the, being in charge. You know, it gave me the confidence to realise I can do this. So that's where my interest was peaked. About gosh, how far could I take this? So again, it's not necessarily about you're not lucky, but it's about seizing the opportunities when they're presented to you. I think that's um, that's really important. Yeah. and had a fantastic career and then I got that phone call that phone call it's like getting the phone call from Jurgen Klopp to say come and join Liverpool and it was come and join O2 and mobile telephony was just taking off it was very exciting and I remember going for the interviews and walking into this fabulous office thinking this is it this is where I want to be and that was that's 2004 And, you know, I had 16 amazing years in that company and, you know what, made some big mistakes, learned a lot, thoroughly enjoyed it. Best 16 years of of, of my career. And I learned a lot of things along the way, you know, on my leadership journey. And one of the important ones was authenticity. So often, particularly when you're a young leader, you feel you need to behave in a certain way. You need to look like the grown up. You need to dress in a certain way. And you need to be officious, you need to wear your hair a certain way, you know, you, you have this view. And actually, one of the things I learned was you've got to learn to get comfortable with yourself and all that goes with that, flaws and strengths. And only then can you become a great leader. So, getting comfortable with yourself, authentic, authentic is, is, is the word, is, is really important. Firstly, it's exhausting trying to be more than one, trying to be a different person. Okay. So, you just got to be that one, that one person. And if you ask my kids or my husband or my sisters or my brother or the people I work with, they'll all say Anne is Anne. She's just Anne, which, you know, now they might like that Anne, but I am I am the same person always. So I think learning to love yourself and get comfortable with yourself is really, really important.
0: And a lovely story thus far. And it resonates with me as a Yorkshireman. So I grew up in Halifax where they used to say, come all our alifax the good Lord deliver us. And that was because in all, and Halifax, they had a gibbet and they would hang you. See, so there was the last paces in the country you got hung, so you don't want to be there. And I remember, uh, I, I grew up, I, I went to boarding school and then I went to grammar school in Halifax and I had some good friends. And I went away into the army and, and I became a bit of a toff. and I came back and they said, who are you? You know, who have you become? And so I then started to, be back being, I've always had quite a a sort of, as my wife teased me, a bit of a plummy voice, but um, I was being myself because they don't want you to be somebody else. They just want you to be you. Because as you said, I think it was Isadora Duncan said, it's it's far better to be a first class version of yourself than a second class version of somebody else. And uh, it was Oscar Wilde, didn't he, he said, be yourself. Everybody else is taken. Absolutely. (laughs) But tell us more, (laughs) tell us more. And then perhaps you'd talk about some of the proudest moments. And some of the darkest moments of your life and what you learned
1: from them as a leader sure so just on the authenticity piece I think um you know great leadership is about trust and people won't trust you if they can't work out who you are that's why it's important So leadership has got to be around trust and people need to understand who you are so trust and consistency you know it, it, it is really important um in terms of the dark, you know, I've had some, I've had some pretty dark moments, both professionally and personally. And i'll I'll start with I'll start with personally. Um, 2008 was a very sad year uh, in my family because we lost two of my sisters in the space of in the space of six months, and that was very sad. because both my sisters were married and both of them had two had children, so it was a very, very, very difficult time uh, to 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 remember actually. Yeah. But I also remember, I, I had a choice. I had a choice how I reacted to the tragedy that had, had, had unfolded. And I could either be defined by it, and to be honest, it would eat me, or I would choose to find some good out of it. And I am an eternal optimist, which really helps. And I very much decided that I was going to survive, we are going to thrive, we were going to be a great, happy family again. And, you know, what, what my sisters taught me, you know, albeit they'll never know is that having a sense of perspective is really important you know and the number of times when i've been managing teams and things go wrong and all you people out there will know that things go wrong at work you know i was just able to say stop no one's died here let's work out what's gone wrong let's fix it let's learn from it and move on Mm. and i look back i think my two sisters mary and una good irish names mary and una gave me that gift of a sense of perspective which i apply now all across my life not just at work so it is amazing sometimes how great things come out of tragedy and the other lovely things that came out was you know when my uh, nieces were getting married you know i went along and helped them choose their wedding dresses because their pair, their mums weren't around and i have two boys so you know that was just a lovely thing to be able to do and to be honest, I owed it to my sister that they bought dresses where they look great in and that they weren't meringues because um, they were watching me. I knew they were going to be watching me, but that was just a lovely experience. That I never would have encountered because, you know, I have boys. So buying a wedding dress was never going to happen. So it is amazing that you can find good out of, you know, some, some pretty dark, dark, dark times. Yeah. And if I look back on probably my, I wouldn't say it was the darkest time, but it was probably the biggest mistake I made. And I won't go into too much detail, but it was in 02. And I, I got a calculation wrong. Let's put it like that. It was a calculation I had checked by many people in my team. But at the end of the day, I was the boss at the time. And the, that calculation, that, that um, inaccurate calculation probably cost the company half a million pounds. And that was not my finest moment. And I was ready to resign over it because despite the fact this was checked by a million people, I was the person responsible. But I always remember the response of my boss at the time. He just said to me, don't let it happen again. Just learn what went wrong and don't let it happen again. And I just thought, wow, that's a big person and that's a big company that can allow someone to make a mistake, a pretty pretty big mistake And just say, learn from it and move on. And that was a big learning for me as a leader. We're all going to make mistakes and how we treat people when they make mistakes. You know, you will be you will be um, judged by that. And that that moment of, you know, it it wasn't an easy conversation I had. But, you know, I remember how it felt. And I thought, wow, I was so impressed by the way that they handled that. Yeah.
0: And, And those three things that resonate for me. One was the the story of John Watson in IBM, similar to yours, when someone came to him and admitted a mistake. And and he said, uh, the guy said, I suppose you're gonna fire me. And John, as the CEO said, fire you. Why would I fire you? I've just invested 500,000 pounds in your development. Go away, it's a teachable moment. What have you learned? What are you gonna do? And your boss had that, which is a great admiration for him. And in a moment, I'd love you to say his name because he's clearly a very special person. The other two things I want to pick up in is the, the thing about perspective, the 10-10-10, the how important will this be in 10 weeks time, 10 months time, 10 years time, and people do get out of perspective. Um, and in the military, we'd often time and again say, has anybody been killed? No, if they haven't, then we can fix it. And the final one is choice, which I think today particularly people are going, oh, the pandemic, it's not fair. I'm, I'm a great, uh, I've learned a lot about stoical philosophy. The Daily Stoic by Ryan Holiday is a great fan of mine. Um, it is Victor Frankl in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, it says between stimulus and response, you always have choice, but we say this happened, I had to do that. No, you didn't. You had a choice. So I think you've picked out three wonderful things, choice, perspective, and teachable moments. But do go on a, Uh, What about some good, good times? And then the advice Uh, that you'd give to your 18-year-old and Pickering if you met yourself again with all that you've learned now as a coach?
1: The other other thing I would just say is, having lost my two sisters, the way O2, metaphorically and physically, put their arms around me and looked after me was unbelievable. And the learning for me was how you treat your people in their hour of need in their hour of need, when they need when they need you, is is really important. And that's that stayed with me. So when you know when people are facing tricky personal times, how you support them is really important. And I learned so much by the way they looked after me. And A lot of it was done from a distance. Honestly, I could feel the love and I could feel their arms around me. And you know, the odd phone call they made to my husband to say, you know, she's not had a great day. would it was just lovely. So that was a big learning for me, is how they looked after me. And the loyalty, the loyalty that, that that drove me, you know, is unbelievable. You know, I, I would have, I'd walk on, you know, hot coals for O2 for a whole number of reasons. But that, that stays, that stays with me.
0: And who is the boss? Who is that special boss? that you? Have? Well,
1: at that, the time when I made the big mistake yeah. was a chap called Andrew Harley, um, who's no longer with O2. Um, uh, he went on to become uh, HR director at Labrooks, And I think now he's he's, he's retired and joined his, his grandchildren. Um, um but there's but the whole that sense of family that 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 O2 has, you know, play has played an enormous part in my in my development and how I treat people. You know, I've learned I've learned a lot, a lot. Okay. And then and then the advice
0: to the younger 18-year-old Anne, what, what bit of wisdom would you give your young self?
1: Oh gosh, I think I would say um it's okay to be different. You know, I I'll tell you a story. I was um, you know, Liverpool pretty naive, I mean, you know, educated by nuns in a very Catholic upbringing, catapulted into the world of Marks and Spencer, um, 60,000 employees. And I remember um, we used to have people who used to visit from head office from Baker Street, that was such a big deal. And the this particular, he was a buyer and he was being showed around Luton's store. I remember it well, that's where I started my career. And I was told to go and speak to the, uh, the buyer and the manager of the store to say that um, lunch was ready. So I dutifully went and found them and said, excuse me, and said, um, dinner is ready. And I just got this look from the manager, didn't really understand it. And then the evening before I went home, I got called to his office and he berated me for saying dinner instead of lunch. And I was absolutely mortified. It's just different where you live in the country. Where I came from, it was dinner. and um, Where he came from, it was lunch. And, you know, I'm sure all of you listening have got, you know, different terms for all your different meals. And I remember being absolutely mortified. Yeah. But I suddenly, I learned later that actually being a bit different is good. You know, being northern, working down south, people remembered me. Mm. Um, so, you know, I had dark, short hair and everyone else I knew had long, long bobs. It's just things that make you stand out. And actually think about what they are. And, and don't don't be embarrassed, actually use them to your advantage. So I, that's the piece of advice is being different is okay. I learned very painfully, um, but it was a good, again, a good lesson learned, you know, as a young you know, person starting their career. I'll never forgive that manager though.
0: I, <laughs> you know, well, I think of a couple of occasions being in Yorkshire where my, my farming friend, uh, Tim, I went to see his, his little daughter and she, she was a tiny little thing and she had a little bag. And I said, what's in there? And she goes, Matty. And I go, oh, is, it, is Matty a dolly? And she looked at me and went, are you stupid? Like, you know, that kind of look. And, he, and I went, no, Matty. Oh, you're <laughs> me. Hi, Matty. And then And then when I was living in York and the next door neighbor was, kept talking about their son, and they were clearly very white, but they had a son called Ali. And, and I couldn't understand. And I just said, how's Ali today? And they, they looked at me and went, again, that look. And they went, what are you talking about? You know, your son, Ali. No, Lee, our Lee. Our Our Lee. Lee. (laughs) So so I've I've fallen foul. Um, Let's go around the Inspiring Leadership Compass, because obviously there's a lot of work that uh, my wife Lee and I have done on that, about what makes high-performing individuals. But MQ, you know, morals, values. You stayed 16 years in O2. So your foundational values must have matched O2s. You wouldn't have wasted that much of your discretionary life energy and being a board member if it hadn't. Well, tell us about values to you and, and what that means and, and, and anything when you've let it slip and how you get back if you let your values slip away from what matters.
1: One of the things that O2 really believed, so a lot of companies have values. They're written behind the reception area, aren't they? And everyone looks and say so they're nice. The difference is whether companies really live by them. And O2 had values of bold, open, and trusted. And every employee in the company could tell you what those values were. Every time you had a performance conversation with some someone, you talk about being, was that a bold enough decision? People would call you out and say, Well, that wasn't very bold, Anne. And really, you know, is that is that is that a trusting way of leading you? So we managed to create a culture where people you know, understood the values, but really lived by the values, and we also had a purpose, and I, you know, one of the things I've learned, again, you know, in my career is, if you get a purpose right, it becomes your North Star, and when you're not sure what to do, as an employee, you can stop and say, okay, what's my purpose telling me? So, let me, let me tell you about O2. We decided that we wanted a purpose, Uh, We were very customer focused, you know, without our, you know, 36 million customers, we'd be out of business. So they were really important to us. And. But we decided that we would wouldn't go and grab an agency to create our purpose. We'd actually create a purpose with our people. So we went out and found that people had energy around this stuff. And that's the other thing. Go where the energy is when you're looking to create new stuff. And we put them in a room and we worked with them and they came up with a purpose. And that purpose was making every day better through personal experiences that count, making every day better through personal experiences that count. That could be if they're a customer, that's someone in your team, that's your boss. What I used to say to our our workforce, to our people is, if you're stuck and you don't know what to do, go back to the purpose and say, is this making every day better? Because if if it isn't, you shouldn't be doing it. If this isn't making it better for the customer, You should be talking to your leader and saying, why am I doing this? And we give you permission to do that. So that's why, I mean, if you get it right, it's your North Star. Mm. That was a very, very powerful way of doing business because it gave people a real understanding. No matter what strategy, you know, what was going on in the business, whether it was a pandemic, you know, what strategic direction was. Is this making every day better? If the answer was no, stop. So it really gives people focus.
0: I, I love that so much. And if I think back to my days in an structure at the Military Academy at Santos, which arguably is one of the finest in the world at developing people, serve to lead was a motto, but it was also a calling that, that officers eat last. And, um, you know, are you really a servant leader? And, and I, I think that people who can find a sense of meaning and purpose, and they do work that's meaningful, I mean, you're a coach to a whole variety of different people and advising KPMG, but but you've come across where people they're just making money. You know, what's what's your life purpose? Pay off the mortgage? Yeah, probably. And like really? And like that doesn't get them out of out of bed. And so I think making every day better through personal experiences that that count it is fabulous. Let's move on from moral quotient and purpose and meaning, which you covered beautifully there, to health quotient. You know, mental, physical health and well-being. Very few leadership models have health as a key element of it, but it so has become crucial. We designed this some perhaps five, six years ago, but the the pandemic has made it really front and centre. What's your view on mental and physical health and what do you do to keep in good shape? Um, and, And when you let it slip, how do you get yourself back?
1: I think interestingly, the pandemic has accelerated, you know, many mental health challenges for people. And I, you know, as an aside, I really worry about the mental health of, of young people today um, and how they're coping. My, my son is a is a teacher in, in a teacher's maths, and um, yeah, he is really worried about what is being what is building up in, in in kids. You know, particularly kids from from challenging backgrounds. You know, so I think mental health is 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 a problem now and I think it's only going to get worse very you know the the progressive organizations had great mental health programs in place um, and I think the pandemic has just caused as I say good organizations to to accelerate those programs so and that will stay and, and that's fantastic I think that's really helpful and just you know t- starting every conversation with with how are you is just a really simple way of starting start by starting um but one of the things I pre-pandemic and, and post I, I guess one of the things that I found really important is that you need particularly as, as you become more senior in your career and it becomes more lonely because it does you need to keep your health um you really need to, to think about your health and, and how you keep yourself healthy and um, and that's you know that's about you know eating sensibly getting enough sleep getting enough exercise isn't necessarily about running marathons and being you know a size eight model but it is about making sure you're going out, you're getting some fresh air um, and you're just giving yourself some breaks. And one of the things I'm seeing now in the pandemic is people are literally working 12 hour days back to back on Zoom calls, you know, seven days a week, and they can't sustain that. And moreover, they will fall over. And that's, you know, that, that, that's the, de- the detriment of the business. I used to have someone who worked for me. She was really talented, still is very talented. And she used to work incredibly hard and she was very, very proud of her work ethic. But what she used to do was work incredibly hard for eight weeks and then she'd just fall over and then she'd be off ill for three weeks. And you know, this, this, this circular pattern kept happening until I sat her down and said, you are no good to me. And she, she couldn't believe it. And I said, you, you've got to learn to balance everything in your life and, and, you know, manage manage your your life. It's a three-legged stool. You've got to manage what's going on at home, what's going on at work, and what's going on with your health. If you get those out of kilter too often, you will fall over. And there's always going to be peaks and troughs. But learning how to manage yourself, your, your resilience, your health, your relationships, your kids is really, really important. It's been sharpened. It's in heightened focus during pandemic. But, you know, the light is now at the end of the tunnel. We are coming out of that. And everyone needs to take a I really believe everyone needs to take needs to take a step back and just you've really got to think about your life as that three legged stool and retain that balance because you will fall over. And sometimes, you know, and, and I've seen this where people are so focused on their, their career trajectory, they completely lose sight of the people at home, their partner and their kids or their parents. And, you know, I say to them, where, you know, where's where's your wife in this? Where's your where's your partner in this? You know, you're hell bent on becoming the next CEO. They haven't given a moment's thought to the impact that's having, you know, with the people they live. So as a leader, trying to encourage that, you know, your people to, to think about life holistically, I think is, is really important because, you know, we get one shot at this life, yeah. you know you know, you want people sort of, you know, dying saying, oh, that was a that was a great career. You know, you want to think, I was loved by my kids. You know, I did okay by my parents. You know, it's not I had a great job at O2. There's much, 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 you know, much higher purpose than that. So getting so, that balance right is really important.
0: So true, Anne. and And um, I, I think of a couple of examples uh, with uh, clients. Uh, one who I described as you, you found that you've got the top rung of the ladder and it's leaning against the wrong wall. Uh, and the other the other person he, he was a bit like a foreign legion officer storming from fort to fort across the desert and and there were bodies behind him of, of people who couldn't keep up and including the family and yeah. he was on his third marriage and i go there is a cost to this everything's possible if you're prepared to pay the price and live with the consequences and and are, do you you don't you don't have any car crashes but i see lots of car crashes all around you and you're not seeing the connection So I think you make a really great point. Let's move on to another one, which is one we haven't chatted before. So I'm just interested in your first impression. We're looking at another area of the compass. Rather than talk about IQ, which is well hackneyed, and it's only 6% of people's performance, whereas EQ is 30% of their performance. But we've changed the IQ to CQ. We're looking at cultural intelligence quotient. You know, your ability to adapt to different cultures, different people. And you, more than anybody, have had such great success in, in that you know, you got the fifth woman on a nine-person board where you got diversity inclusion at two—that 2 was, That was your initiative. You started by starting, you worked on it, you did it. So what's your view on sort of cultural quotient and adapting to different ways and different people, different styles, D and I, really? i just interested in your thoughts.
1: It's really interesting. So a strong culture is a good thing. You know, people know where they fit in. They know what you're trying to achieve. They, they're there because they want to be there. I used to have a, a, a saying in O2 that was, I always wanted O2 to be a hotel, not a prison. What I meant by that is I wanted people to choose to work for O2 because they wanted to be there, not because it paid the rent or the mortgage. You can create a culture like that where people, you know, want to get out of bed in the morning and go to work and do a great job. It, it's, it's the difference is night and day. So the hotel and prison analogy was a really good That's one. Very good. That said, you don't want everyone to be the same because that then becomes complacent and a a culture can become, you know, lazy and you need to bring in new people to challenge the way you do things. And I work with many organisations and, you know, I've heard the phrase, you know, organ rejection. You've got to be really careful because we have a really strong culture and if people come in it doesn't work, then it's organ rejection. And actually what they're saying to me is we just don't like change and we don't like different. So there's a fine line to be drawn between creating a strong culture and embracing change that makes that culture even stronger. And all the stats are out there about how, you know, a diverse workforce can make, you know, a company a lot more successful. You know, in O2, we we always had a, a, you know, we have 34 and a half million customers out there. It was really important that the workforce within reflected that vibrant customer base, you know, because only then can you understand what your, your customer wants. Um, so it's really important that you you, you embrace different, um, you know, it's too easy to hide behind. We have a strong culture. That person won't fit in.
0: Yeah. And if I look, sorry, Jonathan. I was just going to say, uh, you've you reminded me of, as a, as a tech company, I know, um, and the founder and a few of founding members of it, been going a few years now, and it's doing very well, but they all came from a big brand tech company, which is a world famous brand. And they brought that kind of culture with them, and it was all engineers were, were the best. You know, software engineers—they were they were the, the cool guys—and that everybody else was just also rams. And they won't change their culture. It's very much a lads' culture, tech lads' culture, and it's rejecting people who otherwise would be good—women, uh, people of uh, diff- different color, race, uh, sexual orientation—don't feel welcome there, and and they're not prepared to change and adapt to them. And it's very sad.
1: Yeah. De- sad and i and, and just building on that it's very important that the people that you the companies that you work with particularly recruitment firms and search firms that they share your um ambitions around inclusivity because it's just too easy for them to say we couldn't find that candidate and you know i've always given search firms a target of you know when it comes to shortlists i want a 50 50 gender balance shortlist and 25 percent of those people need to be people of color if you can't find that i don't want to work with you because what it's saying is you can they can't be bothered to work harder to do that. So you I think you have to be very demanding also on the organisations that you partner with as well. And, and you know, there this, this should be some non-negotiables. So I always take a pretty tough line when, when dealing with, with that. So it's, it's very easy to hide behind. We have this strong culture. That person won't fit in. And If I look back at the board in O2, the exec team, nine, as, as you said, Jonathan, nine people, five women, there was the gender lens. But if I look at those five women, one was American, one was Spanish, one was Scouse. You know, it was it was I don't like the phrase neurodiversity, but it was that diff, those different backgrounds and the different way they thought that made the, made the difference. And you know what? There were times when we all of us fought like cat and dog, you know, but it was just the combination of nine people who were so different, made for a really successful leadership team. Really successful. And, that, and that's the other thing I learned. You don't have to all love each other. We we were a really great team, hugely respected. We didn't all go out for beers every night, um, but we you know that combination of different made for really good thinking, and that's important around the board. That's important in any team, actually.
0: Yeah, and that's nice. And the sort of cultural intelligence quotient, CQ, is a wider thing to EQ, which is more of a personal thing, which you've worked on and been trying to develop your own leaders and as a coach or trying to bring people on and and help others, as you advise KPMG and elsewhere, that that this ability to read yourself, read others, manage yourself, manage others, but also read the environment and what's going on, what you can control, what you can't. What have you done over the years to develop your skill in listening and your skill in building rapport and influencing? Tell tell us about that.
1: Yeah, as a raging extrovert, as you probably realise, Jonathan, I have really had to... um, I've had to think really hard about that. Um, you know, I would go to the opening of a fridge door um, if it was there. So, you know, I really have had to, you know, be quite thoughtful about my leadership. And I think, I think the what I always tried to do was seek to understand. You know, listen, and you know, t- to understand what it is that people are, are, you know, are trying to say. So that was always my, my you know, seek to understand first, really. And then, and then act, and and then and then you can you know be the sort of the compassionate leader. And I'm a, I'm a great believer in compassionate leadership. You know, the best CEOs I've worked for have been humble and compassionate, and they've run exceptionally successful companies. So anybody who says there's no room for compassion in business is just plain wrong. Uh, the best people I've worked with have, have have had that sort of strong compassion, and compassion doesn't mean soft. Compassion. It's just about caring, really. So I think it's I think it's really important. But for me, it was seek to understand and, you know, speak less, listen more. I, you know, I'll be honest with you, I, that's hard for me, particularly when you've, <laughs> you've grown up in a the family the size of mine, where it was the loudest voice was, was the one who got, you know, the second portion of Apple Crumble, to be honest.
0: yeah, we, You and I were laughing about the fact that I have married into a, an Irish family from Bandora in Donegal. And um, when I go back to family reunions, which sadly, because the pandemic we haven't had for a while, um, it's just bedlam and everybody's talking, no one's listening, but they're having such a good crack. But um, I, I just, yeah. And I, and I think this, this, um, the work of Nancy Klein and that book by Susan Kane, Quiet in a World That Doesn't Shut Up. And I'm a, I suppose I'm an extroverted introvert, but um, I, I have had to, like you, work on listening at the five levels of myself, content, context, the unsaid, and then what does it really mean? And, and, and it's, it's a lifetime of work, isn't it, Anne? So let's go into resilience, which you and I have talked about before. You've been through some tough experiences, you know, whether it be the tragic loss of both, uh, of two of your sisters in, in a, a family of four of the sisters and a brother, uh, which I just can't imagine how tough that must've been within six months, to uh, early on infidelity being made redundant, or making uh, that error as a group, but you had to own it of that 500,000 um, pounds. What have you learned about resilience, adversity, and picking yourself back up? Because you are an optimist, so that helps, but what have, it, what have you learned?
1: You have to stop and pause, right? And just take in what's happening. So I'll, I'll tell you a story to illustrate the point. I was passed over for the job of HR Director in O2 first time round. And um, I found out about it in a rather unfortunate fashion. A, I didn't know they were looking for an HR director for the UK. And B, no one has spoken to me about it. So, you know, my bottom lip well and truly was out. Okay. And I rang my boss and said, um, so you're looking for an HR director. You didn't think to speak to me. I was, I was marginally plighter than this. But, you know, and he went, no, that's right. I wasn't going to speak to you. I went, why not? He said, Cause I don't think you're ready. I remember saying to him, i will never i will never trust you again and he said i can live with that where do you go (laughs) where do you go after that conversation wow and it was a really big moment for me and i went home and of course my my initial reaction was well if they don't want me (laughs) i don't want them but then you start thinking and this is where you've got to pause then i started to think hang on a minute Anne. you love this company You love the people in this company. You're learning and being stretched. And honestly, are you ready for that job? Probably not. So fortunately, I had the wherewithal to stop and pause, have my sulk. And by the way, I am a reformed sulker. It's not attractive. It doesn't achieve anything, Mm -hmm. right? That's, again, being one of six children, sitting on the step and sulking. And that was a really big moment for me. And, oh, my God, am I glad that I didn't leave. We, they recruited an external HR director, and I wasn't ready. He came in, lovely guy, but I knew he wasn't going to make it. I just knew it wasn't going to work out. But he was lovely, and I supported him. And nine months later, I got the job. So always stop and think before you take your bat home. These things sometimes happen for a reason. But, again, you can choose how you react. fortunately, I had the maturity surprised myself not to just say well if they don't want me I don't want them big moment for me yeah and I'm so so glad
0: very good and I, I resonate with that in a slightly different story which I'll just tell in a moment but I wonder if you'd been the um your boss I, I'm just curious why he hadn't got you in and just said look we're running for this role I haven't put you forward because I want you to get more experience and be ready in time, but anyway, that's another story. But my experience was when the head of the British Army, uh, was the chief of general staff, as it was called, was Field Marshal uh, Inge, who was in my regiment. and He came back to visit the regiment, which only has 40 officers in to choose his next aide de camp, his next assistant. And there were three of us lined up, and I, I was a new joiner, I come from another regiment from the signals, I was an outsider, so I didn't think I had much of a chance. Anyway, he, he met all three of us, and uh. Then he called me back in. He said, I've I've chosen you. And I go, Well, that's, that's really kind of you, sir. But actually, I'm not ready yet. I, I've just joined from the Royal Signals to the Greenhounds and I'm commanding a company and, and at a young age as an acting major. It's a great experience for me. And we we've got a tour in Northern Ireland and, and you know it's it's really exciting stuff. And I I'd love to do another year. And, and if it's not cheeky, go, could I be could I have an opportunity in a year's time? He goes, go away and think about it. Go away and think about it. No one's ever turned me down. Oh, God, I'm really, you know, this is, you just don't argue with this guy. He was sparesome. And so I went away and I thought about it. I thought, I don't want to do it yet. I really do want to command my company and get this experience, which is why I've joined. So I went back to see him and he said, good, have you been thinking? I said, yes, sir. I said, good, good. I'm glad you have. I said, I still don't want it. So if you don't mind, and I would love to be, don't talk to me again. go away. And he found someone else. Poor lad lasted about eight months just got savaged by the other person who was the military assistant yeah. who sacrificed him to save his own skin, and he was fired, which would have been me. Now, I wasn't to know that, but anyway, and then I got this call. Well, are you ready? <laughs> yes, I am ready. Sir. And and I, I had an interesting time. I enjoyed it. I almost got fired twice, but I did learn a lot. But yeah. and that's great. Brand, what have you learned from 360? You know, you're big into 360 and and feedback, feed forward. Um, what was the I think best learning?
1: Feedback is a really interesting one. So let me let me take you on the journey I went on to understand the importance of feedback. Just appointed into the job of HR director of O2. Everyone thought I'd arrived. And for about two days, I thought I'd arrived. And then I suddenly had a massive crisis of confidence because I thought, I can't do this. I, you know, I could run the HR team, but I can't be part of the team that runs the company. I mean, God, you know, no way. And I, would, I was not receiving any feedback from anybody. And there are all sorts of reasons, and I'm, you know, very good reasons why, but I wasn't receiving any feedback. And in the absence of feedback, you make it up. You make it up and you get it wrong. And it becomes a vicious circle. And in my head, the little bird on my, in my head, the little bird on my shoulder was saying in my ear, he's not giving you feedback because he likes you, but you're just not very good at your job. But he likes you, you're nice, you know. So that was what the voice was telling me. I ended up going over to Spain to, 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 to for a meeting. And I grabbed someone I really trusted and said, It's all going wrong. You know, I, I'm, I'm not cutting it. And he's just too nice to tell me and I don't know what to do. And this person bought me a cup of coffee and he sat me down. And he went, Look, you know, you're two months into a new role, and it's a big role. Are you doing okay? Yes. Are you the finished article? No. Will you get there? Absolutely. Now get back on that plane and go and kick whatever. That's all I needed. That one conversation set me back on the right track. And that's how I learned the importance of feedback. So I genuinely believe that leaders have a moral obligation and I choose my words carefully to give feedback to people. It needs to be clear, um, because clear is kind. Unclear is unkind. Vague feedback isn't good enough. So as a leader, find a way to give, to learn how to give, both constructive and positive feedback to people. And it will pay back, you know, it will just pay you back big time. But you need to practice it. You need to find a way of doing it. And most people, most people will be relieved because as long as they can understand what it is you're trying to say, they will get it. So it was a massive learning for me. And, you know, I I suffered a bit as a result, Um, but that was a big learning, you know, learning how to give feedback, challenging and and the positives. Because a lot of people give you the, well, that's not going so well, but very often you don't get the pat on the back. You need a balance. And, you know, when a manager or a leader gets that right, the difference in their team, you can just sit there, people just just grow in front of you.
0: Yeah, I, I so, so resonate with that. And I'm a great, great believer in appreciation and gratitude. And I've been reading Vishen Lakhani's book. Uh, he's written two books, but his latest one, got a lovely name, The Buddha and the Badass. And um he talks about the 21 day challenge, which is one you could probably use in coaching for one of your clients to give them the 21 day challenge that every morning, the very first thing they do when they turn on their, their iPhone or phone or whatever device they got or their, or their laptop is they send out, and they've only got two minutes in which to do it. They send out a note of gratitude and appreciation to one other person, it can be client, customer, anybody, but everybody does it. And, and, and they found the productivity and the extra revenue they make and the profit they make over a year is massive just by changing that one thing. and wow. then, Yeah. The 21 day challenge of appreciation, and gratitude. And, and I think that would resonate with everything you've said and time. And again, I'm sure you have this in your own coaching. I found leaders don't give enough appreciation and gratitude. It's like the, the, the husband who said, you know, well, I married her 30 years ago and I told her I loved her then. Do I need to tell her again? I, I think you do. I think you need to tell her every day. And, um, and, and so, it's a big thing these days, and particularly, I think, for you know, your, your children, and uh, Lee and I have got four children, and they're 25 to, uh, to 29, uh, and, and they really do need appreciation, genuine, specific, sincere, succinct. It can't be, it's back to your authentic, it can't be phony, it can't be, oh, you've done a great job, do you remember Mr. Grace, you're all doing well, thank you, Mr. Grace, and it just doesn't really, it has to really mean something.
1: Yeah. And I think just Bill, talk talking about your kids. I mean my my boys are uh, 30, 28, and I've got a stepson of 28. The world that they inhabit of social media is 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 I think it's horrible. You know, I never grew up with it, so I never have those pressures. And even though they're they're adult men now, the pressure that, that social media puts on people to have the perfect life, I think is frightening. Um and I I I do worry about it. And I'll tell you another story, which is a bit tangential, but it's really interesting most organizations have a debt collection part of their business when customers for whatever reason can't pay their bills and it's a tough area to work it's very tough for the people who can't pay their bills it's also a tough area to to work to work in if you're ringing up a customer to say you haven't paid your bill it's not a great job we had great difficulty understandably having people wanting people to work in that area it was called debt collection so we got a group of people in the room, of our employees, and said, "Okay, how we've got to do this. How do we do it? Talk about obvious, but talk about smart. You change you change it from being called debt collection to debt support, and you train your people at a pretty basic level in you know with a few counselling skills. And both those those two small moves, the amount of money we were able to collect increased by over thirty percent." It's just amazing by, back to your point, John, one or two small changes can make a massive difference. And our customers felt, clearly felt supported rather than hounded. And our people felt that they were doing a service to our customers rather than beating them up. So I always thought that's a really powerful story. It also uh, illustrates the importance of asking your people what the right thing to do is. You don't, just because you're a leader doesn't mean that you automatically know. and They often have all the answers.
0: Yeah, Oh, um, very much so. David Marquet uh, was on this series a couple of uh, episodes ago, uh, commander of the USS Santa Fe, and he's written two books, I don't know if you come across them, Turn the Ship Around, oh, yeah. The Ship is Language. And he's a lovely guy, very, uh, very academic and, and quite cerebral. Um, but, but his point is, is putting masking tape over your mouth and don't be the answer man or the answer woman. Um, this is my intent what's your intent on how you're gonna achieve this and let them surprise you with thinking for themselves and it comes back to creating a thinking environment, which in this current climate is even more important than ever with hybrid ways of working and the office being a tool, not a place where, you, you know, I remember my boss in, in, in the army, this was like, goodness, this must've been 30 years ago, Austin Thorpe said, Jonathan, work is an activity. It's not a time or a place. You, you do work, results only work environment you get the results done, you know, the end state and and people for so long, oh, I want them, I want them all back. And, you know, there's the, the the, the CEO of um, Goldman Sachs saying, you know, this is an aberration. We'll get them all back. And for Goldman Sachs, it is a culture where they do need to be there and they are brought on that kind of stuff. But, but to see as an aberration, I think is a mistake. Can we come back to the social media? Cause I think it's very interesting. I've recently uh, joined clubhouse, which is one of the social media platforms Yeah, and um, come along on Friday. Um, Uh, at uh, between four and five uh, every week. Uh, And I've got a group of about 20 to 30 CEOs, but I have about six on stage sharing their experiences as CEOs. Um, And I think it's gonna be a lot of fun, but we're gonna do it in a thinking environment. But when I go to other rooms, it's like a dog scrap and it's massively stressful because everybody's competing and comparing Everybody's telling you they're doing really well and they made six figure numbers, nine figure numbers, you know. And I don't, I've met no one who's failed. They're just all bullshitting massively and making each other feel inadequate and insecure. And and I think it's got to be handled social media very carefully. Uh, I like LinkedIn, I can use that as a medium. I, I use Twitter a bit, I use Instagram a bit because you have to, because of Clubhouse. I hadn't done it before so much and um, Facebook I just use as a business uh, tool, not a personal one. But I do think you have to handle it very carefully because you've got two boys. I've got three girls, and and one's a stepdaughter and a stepson and two daughters of my own. And um, their generation can get really quite anxious, particularly the girls, about looking like this airbrushed model who seems to have it all, and she's done nothing but just have opinions on you know, you know, on social media and she's, she earns a million a year and they all wanna be like her or on some reality TV show. And so yeah, then you get a president that's voted in who's a reality TV show guy. I don't know, get me going on one, but what's, what's your thoughts on social media?
1: I, I, I it terrifies me, <laughs> you know, the England rugby match on Saturday, you know, didn't go England's way. I'm a great rugby supporter. O2 obviously sponsor the England team. But that poor um, mm. uh, woman who was commenting, absolutely berated by people who felt they were. It was perfectly okay to, you know, call into question in a quite brutal manner the way she handled the post-match interview, and she sat in a car and sobbed. Mm. You know, and then, well, you know, England Rugby came out and supported her. But it just gives people carte blanche to say what they like, when they like, and how they like. And I just think it's. I think it's. I think it's very dangerous. <laughs> yeah,
0: I think, I think people should be held to account. And I don't yes. think there should be such a thing as being able to troll uh, without knowing where it's come from. So that that person can actually, I think people should actually face charges when they yeah. are so abusive like that. Um,
1: and it, it, bring, it actually brings me on to another point. You know, one of the things that we always did in O2 was we wanted to, we wanted to create an environment where people felt they could say what they felt and what they thought. But what we were really clear is that we wanted them to be... But we we didn't want it done anonymously. So our comms platform that we had in O2 was not anonymous. And I think that's really important. I've worked with organisations where it's anonymous. And, again, it just gives people carte blanche to to say some pretty outrageous things. So having a culture where people feel comfortable saying, you know, challenging you on something is really good. But with it, having it, it... the ability to do it anonymously, I think, is dangerous. Well, it, creates, a, it, it creates that toxic environment within within an organisation.
0: Yeah, and that, and that's Lee's book that she's writing at the moment, um, Inspiring Leadership and the Toxic Turnaround. Um, but your, your values were bold, open and trusted, and that wouldn't fit with the culture of bold, open and trusted. No. We, the other day, you know, in a situation with someone, they said, oh, well, I wish you hadn't shared that. Well, I said, well we, we need to be more open about this, otherwise we're just deceiving ourselves. Um, the final two or three questions. I'm interested in the legacy you hope to leave and what, what to use stewardship and legacy means. And then a book you'd recommend. And then we'll do your, your, your favourite top tip. So, so let's talk about legacy, And
1: Oh, uh, I mean, when I decide... Signed- my logic about leaving O2, it was a really difficult decision because, um, you know, for all sorts of reasons that you know, I've probably outlined in this in this this conversation. But I wanted to, in my arrogance, go out at the top. I wanted to go out when people, you know, thought, wow. Um, I wanted to leave a legacy in place. And I think I would put that down to the inclusivity agenda at O2. We've made great strides and they're still on the journey. But I think we've done an amazing, myself and my team, and in fact, the whole leadership team, in its broader sense, have done an amazing job creating a culture or environment where people can come to work and be themselves and tell their stories. I'm a great believer in telling stories. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, so at the top, leaving a legacy. Oh, yes, and and having my successor in place. You know, I think it's really important that you, you you know, where you are in your leadership journey, that you are always thinking about, you're just the custodian of this job. Who are you going to pass it on to and who are they going to pass it on? So I suppose in, in HR speak, that's succession planning. But I think it's very important you view yourself as the custodian of, of that role. And, and that way, you're always looking you know, to the future about who are the future leaders of an organisation. And I think that's that's really important.
0: That's a really good way of saying it. And, and it's almost the same way with you know, your sons and my uh, stepson and my uh, daughters that um, we don't own them. We're just looking after them while they pass through and then they go on in their life. And I think people seem to, to get it wrong in both their job. They don't see them themselves as a custodian, leaving things better than they found it. Yeah. What about the favourite book? You mentioned Jeremy Haywood, didn't you?
1: Yeah, there's a there's a book out, I think it came out about 18 months ago, um, which is called What Does Jeremy Think? And it's a political biography of Jeremy Haywood, who was a civil servant who served under the last four prime ministers uh, in the UK. So o- over a period of about 25 years. And, and very sadly, he died by 18... 12, 18 months ago at the age of 56, no age at all. And he was working almost right up until a couple of weeks before he died. But what I loved was the story, because his wife has written the book. And what I loved was the fact that invariably, when there was a crisis on in government, um, the first thing the prime minister would say, irrespective of what political party they were, was what would Jeremy think? And it really got me thinking that he was possibly the most famous or the most powerful non-famous person in Britain. And that's leadership, isn't it? Mm. You know, most people wouldn't even know what his name was. You know, no limelight, just obviously supportive, obviously thoughtful of every prime minister, irrespective of their political colours. And I just thought, wow, that is that is just a brilliant example of a fabulous leader. I thought so. It's a, it's a great book, actually. Highly recommend it.
0: I will definitely listen to it. I'm dyslexic, so I will hopefully find an audio version on Audible. I listen yeah. to 60 to 80 books a year. But I, I'm looking forward to that because I, I do like that. Um, and also it made me think that despite the country having a terrible time through probably some poor decision-making when you look at the number of people who died in China compared to the number of people who've died in our country, something's gone a bit amiss, <laughs> And um, I'm not a conspiracy theorist that thinks that Chinese sort of planted it here and that kind of stuff. But I think there must be some civil servants quietly working somewhere who planned ahead for the vaccination and got it all right and all lined up. And now I've, I've just been through and had my vaccination on the 20th of uh, February and, you know, various people I know, like my brothers had it, things like that. Um, somebody somewhere who no one knows their name really got it right and led the country well, making some key decisions and taking a gamble on some things to, to bet on on getting those vaccines, which has saved hundreds of lives.
1: And, and there is. And I can't remember her name, but she's a woman.
0: Yeah. Sorry, just put that out of there. Yeah. <laughs> If someone knows and let me know, we'll put a blog about it. So we're now down to um, if you'd make, uh, as we discussed before, your introduction to yourself and your, uh, your, your favourite top tip, a two minute top tip and what, why it's special for you, please, Anne.
1: One thing I'm going to say just before that, and as an HR director, some people might, an ex-HR director, some people might think this is a strange thing to say. It's really important you enjoy your job. You know, the average person spends 90,000 hours in work and that's a long time to be unhappy. And it is just a job. You know, remember when it only works, it only works when it all works. You know, it's got to work at home. It's got to work at work. Got to work with your health. So, you know, if you're not enjoying your job and it's 80, 20, the perfect job doesn't exist. okay? But if you're 80 percent happy in your job, then you're doing really well. But if you're unhappy, Think about moving because you know life is too short. Ninety thousand hours on average—that is a lot of time to be unhappy. So that was just the last thing I I wanted to say. Great. Um, so you wanted me to say you know top tip?
0: Yeah, top tip. Introduce yourself and give us a top tip.
1: Oh, so my name is Anne Pickering. Um, until last year, I was the HR director and chief of staff at O2. My top tip—there's probably two actually—and um, they don't link particularly well, but the two that that I've that worked for me. One is start by starting. Quite often, you don't know where to begin. You're overwhelmed. You know, this is a big project. It's asked me to do. I don't know where to start. Just pause and think about what are the building blocks? What well, are the two or three things I can do over the next few weeks and build on that? And that's how we nailed our inclusivity strategy O2. We started small and we finished by having five females on a nine-person executive team in 2019. That didn't just happen. So start small. I think it really helps you to sort of get your head around when you're faced with a, a, a huge task, actually. And then the other piece of advice I would, I would give, it's what I gave myself, we talked about it earlier, Jonathan, is, is seek to understand. Don't assume, don't assume anything, actually. An old manager in Mark Suspense used to say to me, don't assume anything, Miss Butler. And although it was very patronizing the way he said it, it was actually a very good piece of advice. You don't always know the right thing. So never assume, but seek to understand first, and then you can, you can act upon
0: that. Brilliant. Well, stay on, stay on the air, but Anne Pickering, thank you very much for being on the Inspiring Leadership Series. It's a real pleasure, and you have some wonderful stories to share, so thank you. No, thank you. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Perks, And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch, or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.